you've got to be all things to all people, so to speak. And once you have that and then you understand it, the other thing too is you tend to be a lot more patient. You can explain, make somebody understand, look, this is all normal. What you're going through, look, this is what happens. Don't freak out. This is part of it. But in terms of growing and getting better, you've got to go through this. You've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And if you're a high performer, you really need to embrace it and bask in it, to be honest. So the big question is this, how do small business owners like us grow our business, grow our leadership and develop our teams in a way that allows us to get our products and services out of the world, yet still remain profitable? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Bradley Hamner, and this is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Hey, before we get into today's episode, did you know that Club Capital is the largest accounting and advisory firm for insurance agency owners in the country, providing monthly accounting, CFO services, and tax preparation? Check them out at club.capital. Welcome to another episode of the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. My name is Bradley Hamner, your host. I'm so grateful for you to spend a few minutes with us each and every week. This week's guest is Mark Blackburn, the 2020 PGA Teacher and Coach of the Year. Mark has been a friend of mine and somebody I've worked with personally on my golf game since 2006. And even if you're not a golfer, please stick with this podcast. The way he approaches coaching his players, whether they're on the PGA Tour, a club pro, to a junior absolutely will impact the way that you lead and coach the teams in your business. And the way you just even think about approaching clients, your sales teams, and even quite frankly, leading yourself. Mark is just an avid learner. He has the epitome of a growth mindset. His background is really interesting. We spend a lot of time just talking about where he came from Surrey, England, and how he made it to the States, and then ultimately how he got his start in coaching and then to what he's obviously doing today and winning the highest award that there is in teaching and coaching PGA Tour players. So I cannot wait for you to listen to this podcast. I cannot wait for you just to get to know him. It's a pleasure for me. And I just want to say, Mark, thank you for your time. I know that you're obviously very busy, so I'm glad we were able to make this work. Without further ado, let's get into it. Are you capitalizing on recent rate reductions? Are you looking to grow your business in 2021 and beyond? If you are listening to this podcast, I'm going to bet that you are. How many times have you heard you need to know your numbers? But what numbers do you need to know? Most agents know how many sales their team made last month. They likely know how many quotes their team did and maybe even how many calls they made. But do you know how much money it takes to acquire a new customer? What lead sources are the most profitable? Are your internet leads making you money? What is the ROI on each marketing dollar you spend? Do you even know where to start? If not, our partners at DirectClicks have created a free tool designed to help answer those questions. Whether you are spending $500 a month or $10,000 a month in marketing, you need to know your numbers and this tool will help you do just that. Using this free tool, you will finally know which marketing sources provide the largest ROI so you can invest in your business the smart way. Spend 10 minutes once a quarter and input 20 simple numbers, numbers that you already know, and you will turbocharge your sales team by spending money where it works. You can find the link for the free marketing ROI tool in the episode notes wherever you're listening to this podcast and also in our weekly podcast email. I highly encourage all of our listeners to check it out. I use it personally for my agency and it has made a huge difference in my business. Mark, welcome to the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Excited to talk coaching or whatever other avenues you decide. Well, for those of you that don't know, Mark and I have known each other since I went back and looked. 2006 was the first time I got a golf lesson from you at Gunner's Landing in Gunnersville, Alabama. And so I'm sure this is going to come up in just a second. But I just want to say to start off, congratulations on being named the PGA Teacher of the Year in 2020. And I'm just proud to know you personally and consider you a friend. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a great honor to represent the 29,000 people of the PGA of America. So it's one of those things. It's kind of a cumulative body of work award, which is nice. I mean, it shows that you've kind of done your dues and you've obviously made a bit of an impact, which is always kind of humbling and nice. But 
I still always look at it and go, okay, well, what's the next thing? And then the next thing. And so if you look forward, it's one of those things I've never been content. So you're always driving. It's just like the accomplishments seem to accumulate, but that doesn't really become your goal. Your goal is to become better teacher and coach. And they kind of renamed that award last year. And it's actually called the PGA teacher and coach of the year. So I think it's one of those things you're always trying to become better at your craft and learn and go outside of your comfort zone and outside of the realm of golf to improve your skills, to make you a better coach, teacher. So I'm always kind of looking forwards. And I guess the ultimate goal is to try and leave a coaching tree, which is what I call it, of instructors and leave your mark to help people do things a little bit better. And that's kind of the way I've always looked at it is people help me. How can I move it forwards, move the needle to where we can go forward? So I've got some goals, but if it's all said and done and I can get myself in the World Golf Teachers Hall of Fame at the end of the day in another 30 years, it'll be pretty good. So and help a lot of people along the way. So that's my goal is always like, okay, what's next? What's next? Like you accomplish something, you're like, okay, this is it. Okay, well, what's next? Which drives a lot of people bananas, but sometimes you got to soak it in and enjoy the moment. But it's one of those things with COVID, I haven't been able to do that. Our actual awards are not till november the first in Mm. milwaukee this year so it's all good but it's an honor that i will enjoy lots of people have gone into it so it's cool it's cool for the club here at birmingham greystone and then all the people have been extremely instrumental to me as they say it takes a village right we're going to talk about that because i'm going to ask you some things about just going back into all the people that have influenced your methodology and how you've been able to kind of simulate your own approach both from the science of teaching and coaching, but also just some of the art and how you've been able to put together what is your methodology and the way that you approach. But first, for those that don't know you, I think your story is incredible. So just take us back to Surrey, England and how you came to the States and just how you even got into the position that you're in in coaching and what led you to present day. So I think your story is pretty fascinating. Yeah, so I grew up in Surrey, England, which is about, 12 miles of basically as the crow flies to Big Ben, to the city of London. So they're called the home county, Surrey, Sussex, lovely area of the country. So I played all different sports growing up. I was always a sports junkie. I was a lot more apt to sports and being outdoors than I ever really was at academia, so to speak. And then essentially I got sick of getting injured playing rugby and soccer and all these other games. And so I kind of gravitated to golf, came to golf late, didn't really start playing until I was about 14. And then I kind of got really addicted to it and got very competent pretty quickly. I kept getting better and better. I was definitely a late bloomer though. And then I'd never really thought about golf as a career. And then my late grandfather, my mum's dad, who my son's named after, Rex, he basically said to me, you should think about golf as a career. And he was a guy that traveled all over the world and he kind of was a sales guy, but he was always an optimist, right? You could do anything. And so I kind of gravitated to that. And fast forwards, when I was 17, I came to the States, played in a golf tournament called the International Junior, got offered some scholarships from that. I wasn't particularly competent at scoring, but I had pretty good technique. So somebody took a gamble on me, coach Thomas Hopper down in University of Mobile, I came over to the States, then I got recruited and ended up graduating and playing at Southern Miss, did an exercise science and coaching degree and kind of tried to play for a while, got injured. But I would say during my period of playing golf on the Hooters tour, back when that was the main sort of mini tour, Mm. I would spend a lot of time on the range tinkering, looking at people's golf swings, practicing, doing stuff. So I was fascinated with how the golf swing worked. And to be honest, I was probably better at that than I was at the playing. And then I ended up getting injured. I was back in England playing some golf before Q school and I was actually playing really well. And then I hit a shot on the what was our 12 hole Betchworth Park, the course I grew up at. And it felt like somebody basically stuck a knife in the top of my wrist here and I tore some of these tendons. And essentially it was kind of the catalyst for a career change. So long story short, I was living in Gunnersville and playing out of Gunners Landing because I was traveling all over the country. And essentially, one of my dear friends who owned the course at the time, Alan Walker, basically, along with Chet Holman, who was the pro at the time, basically said, hey, look, why don't you come teach work here at the course while you're rehabbing this wrist? and we'll see what happens. And basically, I got fascinated with teaching, and that was Mm -hmm. 2000, or actually 1999. 
And then from there, it was one of those things where I did go back to playing, but my affinity was for teaching and I was teaching all day, every day to anybody, a 30 minute golf lesson, I'd go out there and I'd be back three hours later. So I kind of had this sort of passion for it and that eventually stemmed into after I tried to go back and play again Alan who owned the golf course he finally said listen you're obviously pretty competent at this teaching deal how about Mm -hmm. this how about you come here I'll get you into the PGA help fund that we'll build a building here and we'll help you pursue this teaching and that's kind of how it started and so all of the relationships I'd made with players on the Hooters tour those guys graduated moved on to what was at the time the web.com tour And then they moved on to the PGA Tour. And so that kind of became a lot of my peer group and friends. They were playing and I was teaching. Well, I'm washing golf carts, doing all those selling Mars bars, tees and all the grunt work stuff that is hardly glamorous. The far cry from being on the range at the Masters. But it was one of those things where I was cutting my teeth and kind of doing and understanding the golf business. And as much as anything, I was understanding what I didn't want to do and what I did want to do. And so Mm. that kind of expedited me to do my PGA work, get it done really quickly. I think I got it done in about 18 months, my whole class A, and essentially was just fully engulfed in teaching. And then I'd been doing that, just teaching juniors, anybody, like lots of different people. And then in 2004, I started teaching some mini tour players. And then in 2005, Heath Slocum's caddy was the best man in my wedding, along with my brother, DJ Nelson. Heath was struggling, and DJ at the time was probably naive and lovely enough to me to suggest to Heath. And Heath and I were friends because he was at South Alabama and I was in Mobile, so we knew each other. He said, well, why don't you let Mark have a look at you? And that was, as I've said recently, that was my golden ticket. He asked me to come see him. I went down to Pensacola, and then we went to New Orleans together to the Zurich and he found something. Did he miss the cut? But then after that, he didn't miss another cut for the rest of the year. He had a lot of top tens. He went on and won um, the Southern Farm Bureau at Annandale that October. And essentially, that was it. I was off. And it was all of a sudden, like with a lot of things, opportunity and the right information, luck. I was now a teaching tour players. And I got other players after that. And then in 2007 at Southern Hills, the PGA in Tulsa, Robert Carlson approached me, who was a really successful European player. He was like 75th in the world at the time, but he'd never quite broken through. And then I started helping him, went to Spain with him. And then in 2008, he got to number six in the world and he was top 10 in all the majors. I was there in 2008 when Tiger played on a broke leg, the round where he chipped in and 15 at Torrey. He was playing with Robert. So I watched that whole round of golf. So, I mean, it's one of those things. That's probably still... We had an 11-year run. I still have yet to get anyone higher than number six in the world. So, But at the time, we didn't have social media. We didn't have all the things mm-hmm. that we have now where you could leverage that and kind of pivot and blow it up. So it's one of those things. And then obviously there's other players over the years. But I think the other thing I've always done is my wife and I had kids late, but that afforded me the opportunity to always go and explore and mm-hmm. be able to see different people, but also then – I had the opportunity to, when I came back home off of the tour, I could teach a lot too. So it's one of those things where I was always working and kind of trying to get better at teaching. I didn't see it as work. It was always something I wanted to do. And Mm -hmm. I think that the journey's more been about trying to figure out how can I be better at what I do and then the skills that go into it. And I've always been a kid. When I was a kid, I would take things apart try and put them back together, didn't always do it much to my parents' frustration. But I was always trying to take things and understand why things happened. I'd ask a lot of questions. People used to get frustrated because you're always like asking questions, but it was always a curious mind to try and understand and figure out the why. If I can understand the why, I can then build something out of that and reframe it in my own mind and create analogy stories metaphors to where i can communicate it but if you don't really understand something and know the ins and outs of it it's really hard to come up with your own framework your own context and those other things so i think it's one of those things where it's definitely be a learning and exploration and i by no means the more i learn the dumber i feel to be quite honest i mean i've spent a small fortune on equipment and technology here at greystone i've got a quarter of a million dollars worth of equipment that's why I don't have a nice fancy pool in a backyard area, but <laughs> that's actually 
the way I've been able to try and understand and learn. And we've built a great team of coaches here because we're always trying to learn and get better. And that's the fascinating part. And as we yeah. move forwards, the technology and the understanding of humans and behavior and these other things are, it's a lot more of that's where we're moving to in the coaching world is to try yeah. and understand the person. So that's a bit of a snapshot, the cliff notes. I don't know if it's a fascinating story. It's kind of an interesting story for sure, but it's not what I started out to do. My intent was to be a player and I ended up being a coach. But I think sometimes to have the empathy and to sort of the understanding and the sensitivity needed at times, you have to have kind of been in the battle to mm -hmm. appreciate it and know how to do it. And I think mm -hmm. you look at some of the best coaches, they've been in the, you know, Butch Harmon played the tour, Pete Cowan played the tour. So if you played, I think there's a much better appreciation and understanding of what it takes. I think that you can relate to the players and, and that's definitely a significant contributor to being an effective coach. That credibility, they just know. I mean, you played, you had sponsors and you were playing for your living at the time. And so I know that that gave you so much credibility. Now, obviously what, going back to Heath 14 years ago, you've been on tour so much that you can draw on part of your own stories, but then also seeing what others have been able to do in the heat of the moment at the Masters, at the PGA, and all of these major championships. So you can really relate to that. But have you ever thought about, I hate to call it like this humble beginnings, but it's true. I mean, you were living in the maintenance shed for a period of time. And like, I took lessons from you at Gunner's Landing. And then that was like a ski slope. It was like the green slopes and, or maybe the blue slopes in Colorado. So now that you have all this technology at Greystone and your facility is incredible, and eventually you had a pretty nice facility at Gunner's Landing. I mean, the first time I walked in there, I was like, what is this? This is like the Mecca, right? But you were there for a number of years. Can you just talk about, do you sometimes go back and think about that and how you were bringing Carlson and I think you worked with Boo Weekly and Heath and all these people to that facility? And then obviously you have what you have now because people, like you just said, can see you on social media and think it's glamorous lifestyle. He's flying diamond class on Delta whenever reality, that's not what they saw at the beginning. Yeah, no, I mean, I think if you look at a lot of people, you look at a lot of athletes, you read books like The Talent Code, you start to take a dive into high performers. A lot of times they come from an environment where the environment shaped them and motivates them and gives them the, if you like, drive. And it's also you make the best of every situation. I've always been an optimist, right? If you tell me you can't do something, I am damn sure going to prove you wrong. And so the reality was always make the best of the situation, be enthusiastic, positive about it. And people are coming for the information and what's between these two ears, so to speak. And so I've never looked at the place as being that's not going to facilitate it. I've looked at more of the question of what's the opportunity here? So if you think about Gunnersville, yes, you had to travel from there, but it also made it to the point where if people were getting better coming out of there, then the nucleus of that was going to be me. It wasn't going to be the facility. A lot of coaches mm -hmm. are made by their facility, not by their mm -hmm. information or their delivery. And so I never really looked at it as an issue. I always thought of, okay, well, I've got the technology and I can look at something. As long as I can see where the ball is kind of starting, I know what you need to be doing. It's more a question of, can we get the work done? And so I think that I'd forgotten about living in the cart barn part. Yes, I did live in the cart barn. But again, I didn't see that as a, I just thought, okay, well, that's a necessary step and it's an opportunity and I don't have to pay as much rent so I can turn that into spending money on video cameras and things like that, you know, just when yeah. you start out. So I think I've never looked at the environment as a negative. I've tried to turn that into a positive and it's always an incentive to continue to push forwards. And as I alluded to earlier, I'm never content. So you're always trying to push the envelope and I'm just looking at, Hey, look, I have a place, I've got technology. I know if people keep getting better, I can get to the next spot. And then obviously the ledgers asked me to come and teach there. So I was between the two. We could never quite get them to commit to building the uh, teaching center that I kind of laid out for them, which, resembles what's there now but that's fantastic it's awesome they got a great guy up there with craig bocking they've got a lovely facility so again i kind of elevated to the ledges a little bit where i would take players out there the golf course was great so again i would say i tell everybody that humble beginnings and it is definitely a driver because you're not comfortable if you're comfortable 
I call it a healthy paranoia to be better. If you're always worried that you're not good enough, you're not quite knowing it all, that is a massive motivator to spy you on to be great. And I've got that same mindset today. I work way too much, according to my wife, but I don't see it as work, but it's a thing as a driver in terms of, hey, look, we're trying to get better. We want to find solutions for your players. And every player is a bit like their own business, right? So yeah. now when you coach seven, eight guys, girls, every one of those people takes a lot of energy and a lot of focus and a lot of drive. So you've got to be working. If you're not working it, communicating with them, it's really difficult. So I think that those beginnings were actually really beneficial and they were a opportunity for me to kind of make the best of a situation. And I've always, that's kind of stayed with me, I think. Are you an agency owner looking to grow your revenue and increase your bottom line? Club Capital is here to help. Built for agents by agents. So we know your struggles. With accounting, payroll, and HR solutions, tax services, analytics, and more, Let's get you on the path to serious success. Using data-driven insights, you'll grow your business based on revenue and expense comparisons alongside your top performing peers. With over $100 million in tracked annual revenue and $70 million in tracked annual expenses, we have the data to help you make better informed decisions for your agency. Let's make your back office less of a hassle and more of the strategic generator that powers the growth to take your agency and your leadership to the next level. Visit club.capital today to book your complimentary, no obligation demo. Club Capital, way more than a CPA firm. One of the topics I was really excited to talk to you about is just, I'll call it a broad discussion around change management. I must be real. People are not coming to you initially because they're playing great and they're just like, hey, can you just check me out? They're coming to you because they're struggling. And this is their livelihood. Can you just walk us through the process of how you approach it, like your mindset in approaching that from a psychological perspective? Because you just mentioned this earlier. And then obviously, then you use some tools to get the data and the analytics to actually see what is truly happening with the golf ball, what's happening with their club, what's happening with their body, et cetera, and how you assimilate all that information. But I'm really most intrigued in your process, your thought process behind that. And then I think that there's an application to us in business because we're always trying to get better. And so we may change a system. We may change our methodology. We may change our sales process. And that faces resistance from our teams. I have to assume that you face a lot of resistance from some of the players that you're working with, even though they know they're struggling, even though that they're coming to you from the get-go saying, I need to be better. How do you walk through that from a psychological perspective, a mindset for them and just your process? All right. So this is a great question. And I think that everybody has their process, right? So I admire coaches and I watch coaches and what different coaches do in different arenas and endeavors. So people talk about their process. And I think over time you evolve a process. And if you have competency and success, then obviously there's something to that. So I kind of think of when you get players, you have essentially two times in my line of work, realistically, when you have the opportunity to actually go in and create a change or be the catalyst for a change. And so intervention only really comes in professional sports in two areas, two times, okay? Ideally, it would be three, but it's really only two, is when somebody is struggling and they're in a slump and they're performing poorly or they're injured and they Mm. don't want to be injured anymore. Ideally, the third would be it's not really intervention, but they want benchmarking because it's really, really good. We want to save that data and what they're doing so that we can timestamp it when they're struggling. We have something to refer back to. So you're referring themselves to themselves, not some other, if you like, benchmark. But unfortunately, we don't do that enough. We're trying to change that culture. But as you know, culture is is a whole nother question. We'll get to the process. So someone comes to you. So invariably, I would say I have a bit of a reputation as a problem solver. I use critical thinking to kind of work through everything. Everything you do as a coach is essentially critical thinking. It is a highly educated guess. So you're trying to, I always say, stack the deck in your favor so that you're going to have a positive outcome. So I look at players, they're much like a business, like, and you look at the different departments and 
They might have a bad marketing department, but they've got a great accounting department. You're always looking at a player as where are they performing and where are they underperforming. So the player's coming to you stressed, anxious, worried. So your job as the coach is to create calm and everybody wants certainty, right? So you're trying to create a certainty for them that you have a plan, you have a vision, and you're going to give them something to be able to basically resolve their issue. So they want answers. So I'm always looking at, first off, we are in the stage of analytics and data. So we have a lot of data available, especially at the high, high level. There's lots of it. Now, on the lesser tours, and those players are just as important to me, there isn't that much data. So we have to get them to basically capture that a little bit, or we use a caddy, or a lot of times, even with the best players, I'm going to take them and do an observation and watch kind of what they do. Because everybody remember, and you know this, the hardest part about coaching is the client is highly subjective, not objective. All right. So our job is to add the objectivity. We can kind of see what goes on, but they can't see the forest through the trees. So when a player comes, the first thing we do, we've kind of done the prep work. We've looked at the analytics or we kind of watch what they do on the golf course, but we're going to screen them and physically assess them. So we're looking at that as a baseline testing of how they move and what they do. So what are they bringing to the table? So ultimately I'm trying to make a recipe for them. I need to know what ingredients they're bringing to me physically, emotionally, technically, and then what are the ingredients they're missing to make the recipe that they want? So that's Mm. number one. So we do a baseline physical assessment. And we do data collection. Now, preceding that, I would say, and I have this coaching codification. It's a bit like uh, Madden's Pyramid, which I designed for our coaches so that they would be able to take someone from a beginner or a tour player all the way through to getting them to perform. And the connection, as I call it, is the most important area. And so a good coach has the ability to do that. You're a multilinguist people person you're trying to be able to make a connection with the person to earn their trust early so they'll open up. You want someone to kind of be very, if you like, I hate to use the word, but they've got to be vulnerable to be able to be coached. And so you've got to try and create that environment. So early on, that's the first thing we're doing. But then we go into data collection, whether that's movement, whatever that is, and we're going to assess it. Then we use all of the technology we have. So we get a baseline of what they're doing. 3D motion capture, we put them up, they get their own avatar, and then they swing. We look at their kinematics. We look at their ground reaction forces, their kinetics into the ground, how they apply force into the club. We might run their inverse dynamics on what they're actually putting into the club. And then we kind of take a look at the, what they're doing from a ball hitting standpoint. So we've got all of these analytics. Then there's a lot of question and answer we start to kind of talk to them about what they're doing. If you like, this is what your analytics say. I want you to tell me what you think. And invariably, they're not, again, go back to the subjectivity. They're not necessarily aware of exactly what the issue is. Unfortunately, they have a great gift to be able to do things. They don't always have the ability to understand the why. When it's yourself, you can't necessarily see that. So once we have all that, we then explain to them okay and this is where you can use this for anything so you've collected all the data then the question is what is the task skill that you're trying to improve or accomplish what is the goal that you want so from there we have to start with the end in mind and then work backwards and Mm -hmm. so once we understand that we explain to them okay look here are the things and the ingredients that you have that are going to complement or facilitate what you need to do however Here are the ingredients that you're missing to try and make this recipe. That's where you come in and you say, okay, from the least invasive, ideally, here are the ingredients that we need to add in to get this outcome. So once you've kind of given them that framework, they've got it. We use these big eight by four whiteboards and we write it out and we show them. You're trying to accentuate what they do well. And then what we can add to complement to that to make them more successful. And a lot of times you're also empowering them to understand the reason that they're having these struggles and this conflict and this anxiety and this performance, if you like, drop is because invariably there is an issue that's leading to that. They don't, Mm -hmm. good athletes, it doesn't just happen, right? They Mm -hmm. see a bad outcome over and over. 
now that's where it manifests mentally in these other problems. So once we kind of have all that laid out, now we get into, we're going to teach it and coach it. Like we've got to try and show you what you need to do. And that's where you have to, as a coach, get your hands dirty, get in there, be willing to like show them how to do it. I think that's where if you can demonstrate, that's massively important. You have to be able to communicate it in a lot of different ways so that they can essentially understand it. You have to be able to tell analogies, stories, metaphors, whatever it's necessary so that it's going to stick with that person. So that part now, generally players are coming for a couple of days. You know, the least that good player is going to come from is a half day. So from a time standpoint, don't think of this as going to be in a 30 minutes because that doesn't happen. Real world coaching is not a 30 yeah. minute golf lesson. And so we work on that teaching and coaching part. Once they understand the different pieces that they need to have, we now need to go on to how do we essentially get them in a situation where we are going to try and develop the skill. So what are the things we need to do in order to do that? So now we have to basically get them in a situation where now we're piecing that together and we're developing for them their procedures if you like, the protocols they need to have so that we can give them a chance to start training and developing the skill. Now, once we do that, we're now using a lot of gamification. We're using things to simulate and synthesize what they're going to do. Because ultimately, when they go to do what they need to do and they perform, there's going to be more stress, more chaos, and that's going to lead to a lot of anxiety. So if you're not prepared for that, then you're never going to perform. So this is where the coaching comes in. So you're teaching them and giving them skills, but then you have to synthesize what happens in the arena and where they're performing. So now you've got to basically create that variable random and that practice. And in the motor learning world, we're trying to create automaticity in their nervous system. So how do you do that? How do you react? If you're an agent and you've got a client come in to one of your branches and somebody's irate, well, how's that person going to react? Are they trained to do that? Have they got the experience of understanding that? So that's what I'm trying to do with the players, whether it's at our junior level or whether it's at the tour player level. Ultimately, we give them the tools and we give them the information to develop the skills. Well, now you need to learn how to use the skills. And the more skills you have in your toolbox, the more tools in your toolkit, you now have the opportunity to encounter and navigate and work around anything. Well, now, once they've done the synthesizing part, they've got to move into actually performing. We've synthesized, but now we kind of get them in the arena of performing. We get them there playing tournaments. And so now we have to go essentially observe and watch what they do. And a lot of that part, this we're giving them the skills, but now we get into the tactical, strategic way to play the game. So a bit like if you like to gamble, I enjoy gambling at the casino. I don't really call it gambling because I'm trying to put the odds in my favor. Right. So if you're playing blackjack or you're playing <laughs> craps, you have a strategy, you have a way to play to stack the deck in your favor. It's just the same when you go play golf. We use a stat system called strokes gained. And strokes gained is essentially looking at how you gain off the tee on an approach around the green and putting. So we're looking at ways of how can I attack the golf course based on my skill set. And every player is different. Some players bomb it, some smash and pitch. Some guys are hit it straight. They hit a lot of greens. Some guys scramble really well, chip and putt. So again, once you understand the player, you understand their skills, where they're deficient, you try and play into their strengths and work around the deficiencies Mm -hmm. and you try and refine those deficiencies and improve them. But you never want to take away a strength. People Mm -hmm. are all stars in certain areas. You need to make that the mainstay of what they do. Don't try and make somebody something they're not. Someone's an introvert, you're not going to make them an extrovert, but you can definitely utilize what those introvert gifts are for them. So now we're at actually playing and performing and we're observing. And then the last part is the feedback and the refinement 
and to where you're like trying to continually evolve and chip away. And so now it becomes a lot more, how do we make adjustments long-term? So now we start to change the plan and look at, okay, we know that you've got these issues, you're performing, you're doing well, but how do we optimize? What's your capacity as a player now? How do we raise that capacity? And what are the things that we do? And that's when you get to that part is once you've had a client for a long time, that's what you're trying to do. The tough part about golf is very cyclical. Mm -hmm. And if you take Tiger Woods and the 2000s away, golfers make the majority of their money in six to eight week stretches. So once they get hot, they play really, really well. And then it's tough with what goes into that from a daily basis, from getting up at a tournament to seeing your medical person to get moving. You're going to go train. Then you're going to go practice. Then you're going to go play. Then you're going to come back. You're going to practice some more. You're going to see your trainer. You're going to see your medical guy. You're going to do a cool down. You're going to go home. You're going to watch a couple of episodes or something on Netflix, and you're going to do it again. And you're going to basically do that for seven days. You cannot do that for more than two to three weeks without being just exhausted and fatigued. So there's going to be some times where mentally, emotionally, they're in a really good spot that they can sustain that focus for those three to six weeks. But to do that consistently through the year is really difficult. So again, now you get into periodization about what tournaments are significant. Are you playing in all the WGCs and the majors? How do we structure this to where your schedule and your load is such that you're able to accommodate the heavy periods when they need to be heavy, and then the other periods they're not. So the better you play in golf, the more time you can take off. That's very significant. But a lot Mm -hmm. of times the guys that are coming to you and girls that are coming to you haven't yet reached the apex of that and the peak. So you're having to work through that. And so those are other things that have become more challenging. And I think one of the things from a coaching standpoint is your process has to accommodate everybody on that continuum it needs to be flexible enough and adaptable enough to change but it needs to have enough structure to where you always have something to go back to and i think the beautiful part about experience and we all know what experience is just means you screwed more shit up than somebody else (laughs) is that you have something that you can use as an example to show people look if you buy into this and you stay committed to it the body of work shows that it is proven to be successful for a variety of different people. And so that's the part that you're trying to show people. And so from a process standpoint, it's really very pragmatic. Obviously, along the way, you have to add in philosophical pieces and add in storytelling, these other things to create motivation. The hardest part, and it's probably very similar in what you do, is to keep compliance and Mm -hmm. to keep somebody knowing that they are doing the right things and even the days they don't want to do it, that they need to get up and get on with it, that becomes tough. But that's part of coaching. Again, you've got to be all things to all people, so to speak. And once you have that and then you understand it, the other thing too is you tend to be a lot more patient. You can explain, make somebody understand, look, this is all normal, what you're going through. Look, this is what happens. Don't freak out. This is part of it. But in terms of growing and getting better, you've got to go through this. You've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And -hmm. if you're a high performer, you really need to embrace it and bask in it, to be honest, because especially in golf, it's such a soul sport. There's no team there. You really got to try and embrace the chaos, understand it's coming and then thrive in it. And so I use the mindset of, I'm a big fan of special forces, things like the SEALs. I've got friends that are in the teams and nothing ever goes exactly to plan, but they train so that they can adapt and they can respond in that situation without having to overthink. They know what to do. So my job as the coach (laughs) is preparing every player for that telling them that they need to embrace that uncertainty and chaos and know they've prepared, they have the skills to be able to adapt, navigate and succeed. And then essentially that's the fun part because then if you can create that environment in practice to be difficult, it's really hard to do. But if you can make things 
challenging, stringent to where practice is difficult. There's actually a sense of accomplishment that then prepares them to when they go play. Now they can basically showboat. They're getting to like show their skills, which is what you want to do at any, if you know, you've done the work you've prepared. Now the fun part is actually the performing and competing because you're testing yourself and those skills. And so my job for the purpose of our framework and blueprint and our coaching codification is to prepare players so that when they get there, they know what to do, how to respond. And it's all ho-hum normal. Hey, this is what I do. This is how I go about it. It's very pragmatic. It's not overly big worded sexies it, it's very much in the wooden yeah. mindset because that's going to get results consistently and if you're coaching people your body of work is based on helping lots of people over time obviously you're always trying to tweak it you're always trying to improve which is why like you i'm a sort of growth junkie with books podcasts speaking talking with other coaches and the great part about working towards the higher end of coaching is that you get access to coaches that are at the elite level in Mm -hmm. every other sport because they're all golf mad and athletes from the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, soccer, they all want help because they're golf nuts. So you get to learn a lot from all of those people and all of those relationships. So I would say we're always trying to tweak what we do. If we can make it better and if it makes the boat go faster, I'm willing to change it. But if it doesn't, I'm not changing just for the sake of changing because a lot of it works, but you're trying to tweak it. But I'm also not naive enough to think that if I was doing the same thing in 10 years I'm doing today, I probably haven't moved forward and I haven't grown as a coach. That is one of the most incredible answers that has ever been brought on this podcast. Just whenever asking about change management and you walking through that process, I knew you would bring it. I took like three pages of notes as you were answering that. So there's so many things I could actually break down on that. I mean, we could talk for like four hours and it wouldn't even be a podcast. It would just be a discussion about you and I talking about just growth, right? And mindset. But whenever you were talking about preparing people, it made me think about the fact of putting together business plans. We were just talking about this. I did a podcast about building a business plan and all business plans are wrong. All of them are wrong. So why do you even do it? Because the value is in the planning and then the preparation And it's not to try to predict the future. It's actually to try to navigate the uncertainty that is inevitably going to happen that you know is going to happen. And so that's what made me think about whenever you were saying about training and the adaptability. So I started working with you in 2006. I won two club championships, which, hey, you know, that was my tour. I need to win another one working with you. I've never told you this. and I didn't say this whenever we were chatting earlier because I wanted to save it on the podcast. But when I first started working with you, you just opened my eyes. I just had this insatiable learning. Now it's turned to business at this point. Now it's all about just learning the business end of business. But at the time you exposed me to this world of analytics and data and all these things. And like, I was infatuated with it, right? I was just watching all these videos and just everything. And there's a part that that can almost consume you. And so there's a point of reason I'm bringing this up. Back then we didn't have the social media, the YouTube videos that we do today. There was some of that, but not nearly the amount of information. How do you blend data and analytics and giving them enough so that they have this baseline understanding, but not giving them too much now that they become so overwhelmed with information that they cannot go out and perform? I mean, your next tour event, whenever you're able to be back on tour from your injury, one of your tour guys, Chez, is out there. He cannot be thinking about in the heat of the battle on 18 when he won the Travelers. Was that a year ago, year and a half ago? I mean, he can't be thinking about data in that moment in analytics. He's playing golf. So how do you blend that? Because that happens in business too. We'll track the number of calls somebody's making. We'll track their talk time with our sales reps. I mean, we'll gather a lot of data too. And sometimes we can get infatuated with that. So just talk to us about the blend between the two of those kind of the art and science of being that, of giving enough to a player, but not giving them too much. I use the paper shredder analogy, right? Everybody's a paper shredder. Now, some people are industrial strength and you can put like seven, eight, nine, ten 10 pieces of paper in and it still runs. Some people, you put one piece in and the damn thing jams. So <laughs> it's all about what is pertinent to them, what is relevant to them. So you take all these data points, there's going to be some that have a lot bigger value proposition in the cumulative 
effect and the compounding of that to the overall outcome than others. So you have to figure out with each player, what is that? Now, you're trying to make them aware of it in practice. And then from a strategic tactical standpoint, you're trying to incentivize them that to be significant. But beyond that, when they're playing, it's very much like we know now this is like in unequivocally so high performers and how we've measured them and what they're doing and what they're thinking. They're so external with what they do that mm. they're not internal thoughts and thinking technically and being very if you like, focused on a specific, oh, I need to do this, I need to do that, that doesn't work in high performance. You want it to be more reactive. You want them to be thinking about what they're doing out there. So you make them aware and you give them a plan and a packet. Lots of guys have a statistician that they use and we create, this is how you play this hole. This is what you need to do. If you follow the plan, you'll be able to accomplish those statistical goals that we want. So it's a lot more of you create, if you like, these processes that are going to accumulate in them accomplishing what that statistical area or analysis might be. But I'm always focusing on what are the ones that are relevant. So the goal of a good coach is to take all that complicated information and then dumb it down to the cat ran up the hill. That's what the greats do. So Mm. if you're not, let's say, particularly experienced as a coach, and you might hear a coach say something, you a really accomplished coach, you might go, well, that's like so simple. So the less you can say, the more you use brevity, the more you can make it very, very concise, understandable, palatable, and workable for that person to accomplish the ultimate goal. That's what you're trying to do. So you take all that data. This is how you dumb it down, but you don't ever give them so much that they're going to be overwhelmed and you jam the paper shred. And so I think that that's the artistic part of coaching. I don't think you can be artistic unless you understand all of the complexities of what happens. Mm-hmm. No different to a surgeon. James Andrews is down the street here. One of his guys, Norman Waldrop, who's the foot expert, done everybody's. He's probably had his hands on more feet than anybody in the NFL, NBA, blah, blah, blah. And essentially, he can talk really complex but he also is going to be really dumbed down. He's not going to tell the patient all of the things that goes on, but he's going to explain one little piece. That's the whole premise with the data. If the data is effective and useful, if I can't interpret it, I bring in an expert. So Mark Brody, who actually wrote this book right next to me, Every Shot Counts, he's a friend of mine. Like all of these experts you bring in, Scott Fawcett has a thing called Decade. If I can't ascertain the one nugget out of it, I'm just going to refer to an expert to give me that, then I'll communicate it. But I will take all of this information and try and bring it down to what is going to help, what's the biggest contribution to our overall game and how does that affect it. And I think you can only really focus on one per thing. So once you focus on that, you accomplish that, you can move on to something else. If you give somebody a big list of stuff, it's overwhelming. They're not going to be compliant. They're not going to stick to it. And that's the way I've looked at it. I take the data, figure out what's useful, maybe in the interim and long term, and then I focus on the now and what does that going to do to affect the score. And then it's all about compounding to reduce the score. At the end of the day, that's it. Okay, so I have to ask this question, and then we'll get to Enon because I want to be respectful of your time. How much do you think that you will double, triple down on someone's strengths versus looking at obvious weaknesses and saying, this has to improve? I mean, I know recently... I'm not even going to say it was a weakness, but I know that you've been working with Charlie on his speed because there's such a correlation to distance on the tour and earnings at this point. How do you reconcile that? Because I'm trying to think about it in business too. I mean, we look at this and say, clearly this person has some incredible strengths, but then there's these deficits, these deficiencies, these weaknesses that we do want to work on. Do you know, like, what's the percentage of saying we're going to focus 70, 80% on what this player is doing incredibly well, and then we'll spend a little bit of time, maybe it's short game, maybe it is distance. How do you reconcile that? And is that different for every player? Okay, so for sure, everybody comes to you. Their stats are essentially a look into their strengths and weaknesses, right? So we talk about the best players in the world. I'm assuming you're referring to like elite players now and not a club golfer. But Correct. So elite players, you look at their stats and the stats tell you a story about where their biggest contribution to their score comes from and what their superpower is. 
So you have to maintain the superpower. Now, a lot of times they come to you and that superpower is diminished and you're trying to repower it. Mm. Once you have it there, you cannot lose the superpower because it's such a big contribution to what they do. But again, you can refine towards the other. So you never want to take a strength away in an effort to improve a weakness because that doesn't make them. That's their DNA as a player. Everybody has a makeup of how they attack the golf course and how they play. If you take away their distance, someone that's a smasher and you take away their distance, invariably they don't spend a lot of time on the clubs they would need to be hitting if they weren't a smasher. Well, now that can become a serious problem. So on the PGA Tour, the biggest contribution to scoring world ranking points and earnings is strokes gain driving, which has a massive distance bias. It's not accuracy. So as long as you're not out of bounds or in a hazard and it increases or maintains your strokes gained approaches in greens in regulation, driving distance is the number one contributor to score. Now, not everybody has the engine to be able to do that. You talked about Charlie Hoffman. Charlie Hoffman has a V12. He's a great athlete, but he just grew up in the era you and I grew up in where technology and golf balls and heads, club heads, wasn't such that you could swing full speed and it goes straight. We grew up in the era if you had ballada ball and you hit something where you hit it too hard, the thing would spin off the world and it would go sideways. And drivers' head displacement was smaller. They weren't designed to go straight. Well, now the kids are out here now. I've been swinging full ball with technology because the golf ball goes really straight. If you're a club golfer, sorry, it does go really straight. It just means you're not very good. You need to come see me. But And the heads are massive. You and I played college golf similar time. Think how big like that Titleist D2, the D, D yep. driver, the 917D yep. was. And that yep. looks like a three wood now. Yeah. And so That's when right. I grew up with a persimmon wood, it was tiny. So again, the whole way that people are playing the games change. You can have the potential. You have an engine. You just need to take the restrictor plate off of it and understand it can go fast. Technology golf balls facilitate it. Then absolutely you should explore that if you have the characteristics in your golf swing to support it etc etc so charlie he had to pull out last week with a back spasm but generally speaking like in his speed practice and stuff with a 47 inch driver he's up to about 134 35 miles an hour so yeah his average speed last year was a 115 and he's now in the 120s so the reality is for him All we've done is when he first came out on tour, he was one of the longest hitters. And then he gets older, but he's never really thought about it that way. All we're doing is working on what he does. Mm -hmm. Now, Charlie needs to work on his chipping and his pitching as well. So we've worked on that and we're refining that. But at the same time, we can't do that. That'd be great. And then him not be a really good ball hitter. So the first tournament of the year, he was number one in greens in regulation. He's a ball hitting machine. Hits it straight and far and he hits a lot of greens. The weeks that he putts well, he's going to play pretty good. If he chips average, he's going to play pretty good. So trying to work and make him a great chipper and putter and then not a good ball hitter, that's not going to have enough contribution to his score because that's not how he plays. Does that make sense? 100%. Now, that's a great anecdote. Yeah. Mike Weir, so when Mike Weir came to me, probably one of my best rebuilds, if everyone's familiar with Mike Weir. So Mike is known as a phenomenal wedge player, chipper, putter. So if that's not very good, he's in trouble. He also, when he played his best golf, he drove the ball in the fairway. He wasn't super long, but he drove it in play. Our goal with him has been to get his driver to where he keeps it in play and he's able to get really good with his wedges again because he's hitting a lot of them on the Champions Tour in the fairway and he's got to get his putting. So we've got him driving it good. He hits a lot of greens. And then his wedge game's phenomenal and we're working on the putting. So for him, if we said, oh, don't worry about the putting and the chipping and we'll just worry about like hitting a lot of greens, he's not going to capitalize on that. So for him, it's a different focus. We just had to get him in play. He's a strong guy for his age. He's in great shape. He's got about 112 to 114 miles an hour maxed out with the driver. Well, that's way, way long on the Champions Tour. Besides yeah. Mickelson, who he lost to in a playoff, So for him, the environment he's playing in yields to him. Basically, these are the things you need to do to be able to be competent relative to your strength. So for him, doing a bunch of speed work and trying to get him to hit it in the mid-120s, which he could physically, isn't going to pay 
there's no ROI on that isn't yeah. significant enough to make the investment. We need to focus on those other areas. And so, again, it's all about what's the makeup of the player, their unique recipe to score, and then what are the ingredients that go into that. But never take away a strength, build from the strength, build around it, and nurture the other things to try and improve those. And even if you can improve those a little bit, that will help in the contribution. But the bigger contribution to their scoring is going to be what their strength is. And that's like any salesperson, anybody that works in your office. Coaching is all about building around a strength, nurturing, cultivating those other things, not changing the person. That becomes really difficult. You can only change so much. And why would you change what's strength and really advantageous to that person? I heard you once say that you kind of look at it like practicing coaching, almost like practicing medicine. And your first mindset is always first do no harm, right? Yeah. I could talk to you for hours. I mean, literally, if we had time, me and you just talk and we talk about books and psychology and head up. I mean, this has been so enjoyable for me. All right. You ready for the world famous E9 rapid fire? Let's hear it. Last book you read. <laughs> I reread Peak. It's a motor learning book, Peak Performance. He just passed away. I'm trying to get out. The name is gone. Eric, Ernest Erickson. He just died. He was from Florida State. Really good. Peak. It's all about performance. I've read it about 15 times. Book you would recommend the most to other coaches? There's a book by, it's right here. Can I reach for it? I'll show yeah, you. This is absolutely. a fantastic. Now, there is a doctor called Wade Gilbert, and it's called Coaching Better Every Season. This book is incredible. It's an athletic book. He was at UCLA when Woodham was there. He's now at Fresno State. It's a fantastic book, but it basically gives you and helps you develop a strategy. It's very sport driven, but a bit like my coaching codification, I designed that because I do corporate events and outings to where it could be tailored for any organization. The, the, the process is the same. This book is great. Like anybody, buddies of mine that coach football, basketball, I tell them that this is a great book. Wade Gilbert is the coach's coach. He spent a lot of time with the All Blacks. Every organization you can think of, I've been on a few sort of coaching retreat trips. Anyway, he's incredible. If you're a coach, it's really good because it's a periodized thing too. Has a bit of a sports background on it, but I think that a lot of the attributes that great coaches have, I think that's huge. I will have both of those ordered within 20 minutes of this podcast being done. Your favorite restaurant on the PGA Tour? Oh, good Lord. Mm. <laughs> I can't answer one question. Every city's got great places. The beautiful thing about the tour is every city has great spots that are great to eat at. So I would tell you my food choices are Asian. I'm a huge sushi guy, so like always Asian. Sushi odor in San Diego is incredible. Like that's a, but the hole in the wall, you'd never know, but it's like, true true authentic you have to queue and wait it's incredible in new orleans i'm a big fan of giacomo's up on oak street so there's different places right depending on the cities some of the things it's really hard to say okay this is the one place that i would go to like it's tough so i would say i love to cook cooking is one of those things where you can actually get it done and complete it's very satisfying to me so that would probably be my hobby but every city's different Okay, Auburn football, over, under, eight wins, 2021. Over. I'm all in on new coach. Okay, all right. We didn't get a chance to talk about this, but yeah, Mark and I obviously have an affinity. We love some Auburn football. All right, who would be in your dream foursome and what golf course would you play? Holy smokes. All right, so I guess if I could do it, dream foursome, you can have anybody dead or alive? Dead or alive. Oh, dead or alive. So I'd have my dad, my grandfather, my son who's not that competent but it would be awesome and then me so you'd have four generations and we play St. Andrews oh gosh St. Andrews is amazing favorite tech tool that you use personally or professionally oh if it's both it would be a bloody iPhone this thing's incredible I'm about to get the 12 I can do so much on this that it's ridiculous this would okay, save me a lot of money other than the iPhone I should have given that disclaimer I would say that the technology, that the video analysis and the things we use are, are hugely beneficial. Like, I mean, again, I've got video, force plates, TrackMan, Quad, like all of those things are, there's not one you could just say, I have to have that one. 
so they're all incredible. The tech is just, I'm a huge tech guy. I think it expedites the learning curve. It's fantastic feedback. So it's all really good. But that iPhone is absolutely incredible. All right, so what is the most underrated golf course or venue on the PGA Tour? Most underrated? I'll tell you the most underrated golf course on the PGA Tour. Innersbrook, Copperhead, Tampa. That uh, golf course has been pretty good to me over the years, but that golf course is a really good golf course. Like that's a fun golf course. It's not overly long, but it's difficult the way it's set up. That's probably one of the most underrated. If you look at the guys who've won there, they're all good players. You never get like a so-so player winning there. So we played that a couple of years ago when we went to Streamsong. That is a great golf course. That area that it's around is not all that great, but the golf no. course itself is pretty phenomenal. The yeah. layout, the Copperhead's really good. Yeah. All right. You know I had to ask this next question. Goat, Jack or Tiger? Tiger for sure. On paper, Jack's one more. But if you look at the skill sets and you look at what he's done, Tiger's incredible. Last question. It's Club Capital Leadership Podcast. What's the best piece of leadership advice you've ever received? Your staff and people are always watching. You have to lead by example. What you do when there's no one there is just as significant as when there is. And I think you have to sort of live your life that way. Like, if you want to be the leader, you got to walk the talk as well as talk the talk, so to speak. And that's what I would say. Like, if you're not willing to do it, don't ask someone else to do it. My friend, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for this time. It's just been enjoyable catching up with you for the last hour and a half or so. So thank you for coming on the podcast. And I hope that you and I are able to go to dinner one night. I'd love to come down to Birmingham and see you, but I appreciate your time and sharing with us. Yeah, you got it. Love to do it again. Anytime. Keep up the good stuff. You're inspiring. What you're doing is fantastic. I don't know how you juggle all the plates. So that's super cool. But yeah, anytime I can do anything, jump on here again with you. Happy to share what little I've got, but I'll give you all I got. Well, what I tell you, was that not an amazing podcast? No joke. I had four pages of notes and I've known Mark for a really long time. As we've said, I mean, we message each other on Instagram. We text message about Auburn football and so many other things. And so I always learn something from him and so many just little tidbits and nuggets and things for me to be able to do differently. And I hope that you're able to pick up on some things that you'll be able to apply in your business. Reach out to Mark, follow him on social media. Follow him at Blackburn Golf is his golf Instagram handle. Obviously, you can look up his website, blackburngolf.com and find out more about his academy. A few of the things that really just stood out to me is just the way that he blends the art and science of taking data. And for those of you that play golf, you know, just there's so much analytics out there and just how that applies also in our businesses is finding what is right for each one of the players, how he customizes the programs. He starts with their strengths and makes sure that he does nothing to hurt their strengths. We need to do that with our teams too. There was a time I just recently that I was coaching my son's fourth grade basketball team. And I began to realize that I was trying to coach the team the exact same way. And some kids can be coached hard and some of them can't. And so those are just anecdotes for you to make sure we know this intuitively, but sometimes we forget, right? I've said before that one of the hats that we have as leaders in our business is to wear the CRO hat and that's chief reminding officer. So I hope that that just stood out as an example for you to make sure that you're customizing things. You may have a structure, a sales process, a customer journey in your business that's unique and important, but then also making sure that you're tailoring your coaching and your approach and your stories, your analogies for who that is in your team and not trying to coach everybody the same. And I think Mark is just an incredible example of that. I think that he just showed the importance of learning. We were not able to get into it here on this podcast, but just how he's been able to take in so many different influences from other sports and books and other things and how that's helped him to be better in what he does. And then lastly, we didn't touch on this either, but he didn't mention it at one time, just how he's willing to bring in other people. He's willing to bring in experts to be able to help some of his players, whether it's club pros or juniors, or especially on the tour at the highest level. I mean, he's dealing with athletes at the highest level that literally their livelihood relies on what it is that he's teaching and coaching them. But you know what? So it is yours. I mean, so does your teams. Their livelihood is based on how you are coaching and developing. And so I just want everybody to see that, like what you do as a leader in your business, as a coach to the team members on your business, absolutely 
matters. And so it, we owe it to the teams and to our businesses to make sure that we're doing the things to continue to grow and develop ourselves. Just listening to this podcast, you are doing that and be just a constant learning. That's what we hope to be able to do on this podcast is bring incredible guests. Yes, that have maybe an insurance background, but people like Mark and so many others that are authors, they're so incredibly giving of their time. I can't wait on when we get to episode 100, I'm going to kind of do a look back on the past 100 episodes and just some of the books recommended, but just some of my key takeaways that have come from this and just the relationships that have been built with some of these people before these podcasts and after the podcast has just been absolutely fascinating and, and grateful. And I just want all of you to know, we're grateful for your time. We understand you're busy, a lot of people vying for your attention. So thank you for spending a few minutes every single week. We appreciate your loyalty and support. If there's some guest that you know that you think would be great on this podcast, reach out to us. If you're not getting our emails, make sure you go to club.capital forward slash podcast. Sign up to make sure that you know whenever each one of our episodes is dropped. We try to drop an episode every single week at this point. I want to thank my team behind the scenes to be able to pull all of this off. You guys are incredible at being able to just pull all these things together and get this out there. So thank you to all of them. Obviously, big thanks to our friends at Direct Clicks, Matt and Maddie Jonesa. You're incredible sponsors. We're grateful for you. Folks, we would not be recommending Direct Clicks unless they were incredible at what they did. Okay. If you have questions about SEO, if you have questions about pay-per-click ads and just don't know where to start and you don't know whether or not you're ready to commit to something like that, we understand that and they understand that. Reach out to them. If you haven't, make sure that you've downloaded the marketing ROI tool, free tool that you can get just by giving your email address to them. The link is in the show notes, whether you're listening to this on Spotify, Google, or Apple. And then obviously it's in the link that we send out every single week with our podcast. Until next episode, lead well. Well,